Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. If he talks to me, I think he'll leave you. Do you want him to leave you? Yes. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you two are hypnotized. Welcome to this percolated media Halloween special. As the three men in a retrospective podcast review all of the movies in the Exorcist saga. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Join Garrett. I haven't had a bath for three days. And Matt. Why me? As they bring back horror film scholar Mick Duffy. I wouldn't be concerned about reason, Major. He's a scholar. And they review each film, one exorcism at a time, all leading up to a review of the brand new David Gordon Green directed entry to be released this Halloween season. Does the original Exorcist deserve its title of being the scariest movie of all time? I cannot tell you it's forbidden. How will Matt and Mick react to their first time viewings of The Exorcist 2? And I hate it. I can't stand the sight of it. And why are there two versions of the fourth sequel? He will seek to poison your mind. The answer to all these questions and more... Nothing you can do could make it any worse. Coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Pazuzu, prince of the evil spirits of the air, take me to Kokumo. Exorcist, The Beginning, released August 20th, 2004. Budget on this was $50 million. Box office total, $78.1 million. And this was directed by Rennie Harlan. Oh boy, a lot to get into with this one. Released, what was it, 14 years after Exorcist 3. This went through a massive rehaul that we'll talk about. Mick, what do you know about these two before we got into doing this series? I knew that when they originally announced Exorcist at the beginning, that it was going to be a Paul Schrader film, and that Paul Schrader was directing it, and that the screenplay was by Caleb Carr, um, the historian and novelist, I guess best known for writing The Alienist, which is sort of Gilded Age serial killer thriller, if you've never read it. So yeah, I was quite excited. You know, uh, Schrader, uh, Schrader was doing interesting work in the early aughts. He just made Autofocus which mm-hmm. is such an underrated film and I think speaks to this current moment in ways that haven't been fully acknowledged. So I was very, very excited, you know, simply because, well, it's they've, they've not parceled this out to some hack. They've gotten Schrader, who's an interesting, you know, um, director. You know, not all of Schrader's films work, but when they do work, they work wonderfully for me. So I knew that, and then I eventually heard the reports that yeah, they were junking Schrader's version and bringing in Randy Harlan to remake the film from scratch. Yeah, then I didn't see it when it came out because it didn't sound... Well, it sounded like it was being deprived of something better. 
Goudreau, what about you? You, uh, When you started your dive into this series, you come across these two movies. What, what were you thinking when we got into a movie directed by Rennie Harlan, of all people? Well, initially, I thought this was the same movie just advertised as a director's cut that's maybe 10 minutes longer. Little did I know, I had to do my own archaeological digging and learned that this movie has as troubled a production history as you will find for a mainstream release, certainly in the horror genre. I mean, there's not a lot of examples of a studio basically having a movie done and then, for all intents and purposes, changing gears. That often happens in the writing process or somewhere further down the line, but I mean, I guess it's prophetic we did the Snyder Cut already and talked about Justice League because it's kind of a comparable situation, at least in theory, but I was not excited to watch either of these versions because I've maintained that you know, The Exorcist, the original, is it's whole, it's there, and I like the third one so much because even though it's tied to the first one, it's still very much, it's it has its own path that it sets out on. It's more of a procedural than it is a horror movie. And then I don't even know what you classify the second one as beyond just an abomination. So we've gone from The, the Exorcist to The Abomination to Legion to the beginning. Can't get much more of a slope than that. Well, no, it's a... Um Okay, this is, uh, I think, the biggest change with this is that we've gone from three films directed by auteurs, yes. Mm. So, I mean, I, uh, you know, Friedkin, obviously, you know, very respected director, you know, critically admired. Sherman, the same, though obviously his film is terrible. There aren't a lot of people going to bat for um, Exorcist to Electric Pazuzu, as I started calling it. Um, <laughs> and again, with Exorcist 3, because, you know, it's blatty writing and directing it. So, you know, these are all films with strong authorial signatures, and they're not, they're not hack jobs. And Exorcist, the beginning, is by definition that. It is by definition the studio saying, yeah, we want something a bit more mainstream and less full of vision or personal idiosyncrasies. Me and Matt have discussed Rennie Harlan in the past. Uh, actually, the three of us did when we did Nightmare on Street Part 4. Uh, Mick, as a whole, what do you think of Rennie Harlan's work? We haven't seen or heard for too much about him in the last few years, although supposedly he's working on a Strangers film. It's, right coming, it's coming out. I've seen still. Yeah, it's coming it. out like, yeah, a couple, in a year or so. What do you feel about Rennie Harlan as a whole, Mick? I think I've, I became, I've become less and less excited about Rennie Harlan as a filmmaker as his career's progressed. I remember circa um, when Prison came out. Oh yes, yeah, the Charles Band film that kind of first got him attention. I remember mm-hmm. thinking, oh, this is a, this is a really interesting piece of work. This is somebody making a film with a Charles Band level budget, and they still made something stylish and interesting. So that when he got Nightmare Four on the back of that, that seemed. That seemed a natural progression. And Die Hard 2, his next film, is obviously not as good as Die Hard, but it's still a very stylish and very slick action movie. And it's kind of been in that groove in the 90s where he was like, yeah, Rene Harlan. I mean, he was he was in the frame for Alien 3 and then backed out to make a comedy oh, film with Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, Vore Fairlane. <laughs> yeah. Would you be sorry to hear didn't get a theatrical release in my country? <laughs> <laughs> Astonishing, but um, yeah, no. Harlan kind of just Harlan looked as if he could have been sort of an energetic sort of stylist, a sort of Tony Scott, not a Ridley Scott, but maybe an, maybe another Tony Scott. But he sort of, and especially after the failure of, of 
of Cutthroat Island, is that his pirate mm-hmm. movie? Yeah. Yeah. After the failure of that, he kind of just becomes hack, you know, uh, because that's on such a colossal failure that I suppose he has to take whatever work is given. He was a smart man getting off Alien 3. That's probably the best decision he made outside of marrying Gina Davis. Because to me, Randy Harlan's only made one great movie, and that's The Long Kiss Goodnight. And the reason I say that is because he actually had something that none of his other movies really have, a very well-written and thought-out script. It helps that he has Shane Black, of all people, doing that movie. But I would say, like, Long Kiss Goodnight is the movie that is great, but... If you swap out Rennie Harlan for Tony Scott, I think it becomes an all-timer. Like, I think it's it's that level of intricate and fun. And then he made Deep Blue Sea, which... Well, I would bat for Deep Blue Sea. I would bat for Ford Fairlane. I, I have an affinity for that film. I enjoy that film. It's a guilty pleasure, but I do enjoy it. I do think he has a slick sensibility. I think he, he was slick. And he's good with set pieces. You know, Nightmare yeah. 4. Nightmare 4, I think, has some really great visual stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't... I don't We'll talk about this in like five years. I don't care for any of the Die Hard sequels after the first one. So his is just fine. Cliffhanger's okay. Cutthroat Island's not as bad as its reputation. It's just way too long. It's, the, it's irrelevant now that Pirates of the Caribbean is, is around. So it's mm. like, finally, someone made an actual good pirate movie. Uh, but Deep Blue Sea was kind of the turn where I, I think he left his brain on Shane Black's desk because from Long Kiska Night on, his movies get incredibly stupid. Did you ever see that movie 12 Rounds with John Cena? Never oh, did. It, it's, it's borderline incomprehensible when you look at it. No need for that to be as complicated as it actually is. And, and then there's it, Driven with Stallone, which, oh my God. I yeah. mean, it, 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 his career did take a real downturn. Yeah, but yeah. If you ask me what, what's his worst movie? Do you guys ever see The Covenant? Oh, yeah. It's unwatchable. No. Yeah, <laughs> bunch of bu- bunch of male it's witches. The, it's the male version of the craft, basically. Yeah. This is the the craft's not good to begin with. So doing a ripoff of the craft makes it even worse. Doesn't doing the craft with guys misunderstand the core appeal of the craft? <laughs> yeah, and it's not to be confused with. There's a new movie called The Covenant that just came out. It's not that. He, he's got the strangers. He's doing a trilogy. All of them are supposed to be coming out next year. Yeah. yeah. I, I so he's still working and he's 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 on my Facebook, so I see his posts a lot and uh he spends a lot of time on vacation. For some reason the guy has so much money he's able to vacation wherever he wants. Every time I turn around on his feed, he's somewhere else. It, it's so. funny, you would you would think that the the success, at least financially, of Die Hard Two and Nightmare Four would sort of be cancelled out by Cutthroat Island being such a bomb. Because, uh, you know, this movie barely made its budget, didn't even make its budget back if you go by the doubling your budget to break even. So this was kind of a bomb as well. Deep Blue Sea, I know, made money. It did. But that's just because well, that- I think 1999 is just one of those, it's one of those great years where even garbage people went to go see because it was just exciting to go to the movies. Let's talk about this movie. So we have producer James G. Robinson, who's been with us since the last film. And he started working on this in 1997. Now, Mick, why do you think it took so long to get another Exorcist sequel going? I have my own theory, but why don't you give yours first? I think it's them trying to thread the needle of making a sequel to this iconic and very successful film, but without it seeming like a hack job. Without it seeming like Friday the 13th Part 4, 
you know, you can't hire a Joseph Zihu to make this film. I think they were they were intent upon making sure that this still seemed classy, and that's why you asked Caleb Carr to, to write the original screenplay. And that's why, I mean, before Schrader, they were looking to get John Frankenheimer to direct. John Frankenheimer was on with Liam Neeson in the lead. With Liam, yeah, yeah. Um, and before that, they had another gentleman we've talked about, Tom McLaughlin. He was attached to it, and then he departed. Yeah, yeah so ah. it's, a, it's, it's that, it's... It's not like a horror franchise film where you could go, well, we'll get this journeyman director to crank this out. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we'll hire this person who's just out of film school or just done some adverts or, you know, somebody who's young and hungry. You know, you can't apply the normal horror movie franchise production line rules to this. I guess they, they, they realized they had to try and make it seem classy and important. And that they understood that was, that was at least part of the uh, franchise brand. Yeah, Frankenheimer was attached. The initial script was actually written by William Wisher, who is a co-screenwriter of Terminator 2. And then they brought Caleb Carr to do a bunch of touch-ups on it. Although if you talk to him, he still says that both of these movies that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks bear little to no resemblance of what he put in those scripts. So you bring someone in to class it up, to touch it up, and they still don't use hardly any of it. Sort of the onset of these revisiting iconic franchises. Texas Chainsaw was right around this time. So I'm I'm not surprised that they went to The Exorcists because I think, like this movie and its production history goes to show just how stupid the mentality of studios often are, that they don't know what they want as as long as it makes money. And sometimes they outright fail in that regard too. So it makes them look even dumber in hindsight. Yeah, so... After Tom McLaughlin departed, John Frankenheimer took a real liking to the script. He brought on Liam Neeson to do it. They were developing it, and then John Frankenheimer passed away. And after John Frankenheimer passed away, Liam Neeson said, I'm done. I'm not going to do this without him. So they brought on Paul Schrader, who also took a liking to the script, was not a big fan of The Exorcist films, and he worked on it. He turned in a complete cut, uh, even in the middle stages, while he was turning in dailies. They were giving him a little bit of a hard time, like, you need to do this, this, this. And Schrader, if we know something about Schrader, he's a really stubborn individual, and he's going to do things his way. And I don't know if he took notes from the studio and decided to not even go through with them, but he made this movie his way, turned it in, and the studio said, you know what? This isn't going to work. Uh, we'll talk about that movie next week, but Mick, I mean... W- have you ever heard of this, of them just scrapping an entire movie and then doing it all over again? I can't think of another example of this. Mm-hmm. I really can't. Extent, no. No, I mean, it was, you know, we can think of examples of films where it started shooting and maybe got a week or so into production before you know, the original director is fired and they start again. But no, no, I, I really, I've been racking my brains trying to think of another example of this, but no, not really. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And my theory as to why it took so long, Exorcist 3, on top of being not a colossal failure, but it was a failure upon release and critics weren't too high on it. But one person in particular was really high on that movie. <laughs> And we didn't mention this last week, and I'm shocked that we didn't. While going through trials, it had come out that Jeffrey Dahmer, The Exorcist 3, was his favorite film. And he would show victims the movie before he killed them. That's not a good look for your film. And that, that's just a really dark part of the history of this franchise and horror in general. Mick, do you remember all that? I don't remember that. I remember, um, I remember Dahmer's arrest and the discovery that he'd killed so many people. I remember that completely scuppering the release of Eric Red's film Body Parts. 
mm-hmm. which I think briefly went to number one at the US box office and then got yanked because the studio didn't want to seem to be exploiting this new story. Uh, so, no, it's, I didn't know about Dammer liking Exorcist 3. It's, uh, wow. It the Exorcist 3 and Return of the Jedi, which, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Return of the Jedi. You, you know, like it, three it, quills. Yeah, yeah, right? He had yellow eye contacts, and he would put them in to kind of impersonate the Emperor and the Gemini Killer from The Exorcist 3, and he just kind of became another person while watching the movies. It's just, it's a crazy story. If you want to feel like showering every 10 minutes, watch that show on Netflix that they did on it. I did that this week. I did a deep dive on it when I read that. It's just, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating, yet dark part of horror history. But I mean, here we are. I mean, look, those tabloids were right next to my Dr. Seuss books as a child, so maybe I did. <laughs> Alright, with all that being said, we have a movie to discuss. We have 2004's Exorcist the Beginning. Boys, what do you guys say we dive right in? Sure. This isn't going to take that long. So we open with a sun rising and we cut to a man with a cross moving through a slew of fallen bodies. He kneels before one and finds the statue of Pazuzu from the first film. We cut away from a bunch of upside down bodies on crosses. And that, my friends, is our pre-title sequence. Matt, what are you feeling as we get into this film? I thought for a second I put in Transformers 5 because I thought for sure we were going to see Merlin in about two seconds. For all I knew, they could have just taken principal photography shots from Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven and just inserted them here and claim it was part of The Exorcist. This movie has one of those terrible instances of two false starts when in reality you should have just opened in Cairo because at the end of the day, this part... Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. Well, it's it's the way the camera pulls back, because there, there's two hilarious things happening when this knight stumbles upon the massacre. It's, first of all, the fact that, you know, the movie rule is characters can't see something until the camera sees it, even though logically they should be able to see it. Yes. Uh-huh. Do you remember that joke in Top Secret where Val Kilmer is crawling along, <laughs> and he, you know, he, he bumps into a boot? And then the camera tilts up and we see it's just a boot and there's nobody standing in it. It's that here. It's like you would see the uh, many thousands of corpses and the people crucified on the hills. The the, the pullback's insane. It, and again, it's the, the ridiculous. He can't have seen it yet because the film camera hasn't seen it yet. But also the fact that it's such a great early aughts digital shot. Where instead of this being a practical tracking shot we've pulled away, it, it's all been done digitally. And it looks so digital. It looks like it was scrapped and redone, actually. <laughs> well, oh, well, that's man. also a, an undercurrent of a problem with this entire movie, is that the CGI sheen that they put throughout this entire movie, whether it's the exterior shots, whether it's the effects later on, you know, the slow motion glass shattering that we get, it, it makes everything feel like it's stuck in a time capsule. This feels like all those bad mid-2000s horror movies in America that just kind of become like this homogenized blob where you can't tell them apart. This fits right into that, and specifically because of the effects and just the visual look of this movie. We cut to Stellan Skarsgård as Father Marin, and as grumpy as George C. Scott was last week, I feel Skarsgård is just as grumpy here. This is somebody who was the one holdover from when Schrader's version was scrapped. Harlan recast the entire movie, kept Skarsgård. Skarsgård was hesitant at first, but he decided to take it. How do you guys feel Skarsgård does in this role? 
He looks like he's about to take a nap. He looks bored. It, it's funny because, like, you mentioned Liam Neeson. This is how Liam Neeson has looked in every movie for the past decade. So I don't think there would have been a difference if they cast him. I mean, he has minimal resemblance to Max Foncino. Not that that's a, a steadfast requirement. But when you judge prequels, you got to ask yourself, do I feel like this movie is justifying its own existence? And with what we see with Marin throughout this entire movie, my answer to that question is an emphatic no. What, and also, like, again, our coincidences are striking again. Why the fuck is this opening like Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, I can answer that. Okay, I think the thought process goes something like this. Um, we know, you know, they'd have known from the original novel that Father Marin's first name is Lancaster, and he also has a background in archaeology, and Lancaster is a place, well, it's a place in England, and also, I guess, a county in Pennsylvania. And do you know who else has a place name as a, as a forename and knows about archaeology? Yeah. See, Lancaster, Indiana. It's oh, jeez. This is clearly what's <laughs> happened, right? They thought, yeah, no, his, his first name's a place. He knows about archaeology. This, this is our take on the character. He's, he's a sort of mid-20th century adventurer. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I seriously feel that this movie, all it's doing is taking that... One line taken from that first film of Father Marin doing an exorcism once before, and they're turning it into this movie. I feel like that was kind of the germ of the idea here. Yeah, but that's even more inexcusable because that's one of the 8,000 Bible-sized length of issues that the second movie had. Yeah. So they're regurgitating that to an effect on the same level. Okay, well, there's two thoughts going on in my head just throughout watching all of this. And one is, if this wasn't called Exorcist the Beginning, if this was just kind of a, an early aughts horror film, in which the main character is an ex-Jesuit turned freelance adventurer, I'd be probably quite more interested in this. It's got the albatross of trying to be a follow-up to this very iconic and successful film. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of movie, if it had been free to be something pulpier and dumber, it would actually be a lot more enjoyable. If some, if in isolation from this, somebody said to me, hey, Nick, mid-budget horror film about an ex-Jesuit who travels sort of the world during the Cold War and encounters scary stuff, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll have that. But no, it's because it's trying to be a sequel to The Exorcist or a prequel. The, the pulpy tone that this film inadvertently has uh, sort of obliterates the Exorcist vibe we should be getting, but it also doesn't commit enough to this pulpy tone. If this is uh, if this had been as as pulpy as Deep Blue Sea, I think we'd all have had a more a much better time with it. Yeah, you bring someone like Harlan on to pulp it up, right? This yeah. is Harlan. Yeah. I, as much as we talked about the slicked up nature of the opening scene, he's trying. I've read interviews with him from around this time. He was trying to really calm that slickness down for this. He was trying to be restrained. But you don't bring Harlan in for that. If you wanted that, you would have kept Schrader's version. Right. But uh, have you listened to Harlan's? DVD commentary on this because it basically he had I think six weeks to shoot this and I think part of the Harlan thing is you know with the films that he'll be remembered for they're usually the ones that had huge budgets where there's more time to sort of dig in and do set pieces even just get more setups in a day or over the course of your shoot and with this this is this isn't Randy Harlan in blockbuster mode this is Randy Harlan in you know in mid-budget mode right 
And that's the difference. So Marin's learning about discovery in Africa, a church with a rare object waiting inside, and he's called a man who has lost faith in everything but himself. He sees a carving of a demon, and then he heads to Kenya. Marin is then given details on the dig and that there is a church there where a church should not be. He's then introduced to Father Francis, and Marin is fast to correct him from calling him Father Marin, and Marin is then told they are as in the dark about the actual church as he is. So, once again, we're having a crisis of faith, right? If you want to call it that. So, so much of what this movie should be about is given lip service, because none of the dialogue or these incidents really feel like they're unraveling this, like, horrible mystery or, like, this, this undercurrent that something's out to get them. Instead, the movie will stop to do all the dumb, lazy things that these movies of this time, like the bad American horror films, would do. Whether it's distorted Christian imagery, you have birds just shouting in frame, glass shattering, so I expect Stone Cold Steve Austin to come in and <laughs> light up this movie. And it's sort of got the, the whole thing of, like, well, we don't have much of a story and we don't really give a shit about these characters, so we're just going to pile on the gore to give you something to look at. And, and to be honest, there's stuff in this movie, one scene in particular, that caught me so off guard that I was surprised it was not in the Paul Schrader version. Well, I think a lot of the dialogue feels like it's just there to get us to the next plot point. They don't yeah. feel like scenes in a movie. I mean, it, it's all a bit tired to say this, but they do feel like cutscenes in like a point-and-click uh, Exorcist video game. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Christianic Boar. Yeah, we're just we're just told exposition, and it's a uh, not a lot of stuff is left hanging, and it's all kind of very bluntly spelled out for us. And it yeah. would be scarier if there was more ambiguity. Yep, and we'll say it again. I mean, that's what Friedkin kind of thrived on. You know, the ambiguity behind it. I, th- I think James D. E. Robinson and company just really missed the boat on this. We see Marin and Francis, they're moving along the countryside, and they see the results of the plague from centuries before, at least this is what we're told. Marin admits that his will is weak and accepts a drink, and then Marin meets Sarah Novak, who's, of course, dressed in pristine white, even though they're in the desert. I mean, it beats Tote wearing all black and raiders, at least. Yeah, that's true. Sarah tells Marin that there are evil spirits in the church, and Marin is quick to deny being a priest. He's actually an archaeologist. Oh my god! And like this movie is like it defines character development as strictly telling. Yep. Characters <laughs> don't show their characterizations; they tell you what how they feel. Mm-hmm. I think Mick hit it right on the head. It's point and click. Yeah, yeah. You know, the difference is those point and click games you can turn off. We'll talk about an Exorcist video game in a couple weeks. Actually, we meet more people who are along for the dig, and Marin then leaves. Pull up to the church, and we're getting some banter between Marin and Francis. Marin discovered that even though the site is 1,500 years old, it isn't even a bit weathered. One villager suffers what's believed to be a heat stroke as a little boy approaches Marin, saying that he's collecting rocks. Marin says he's there to see the answer to his church, which was built here. Marin prevents Joseph, a kid that he just meets, from bashing the boy he saw earlier, and then we cut to Marin going down a ladder into the church. He takes a lantern and looks around, and he is quickly joined by Francis. They walk a bit. They come across images of Lucifer, and we see some crows just engulf the screen and soundtrack for a few moments. Oh, God. You know, we've already had someone called Steve Austin with the glass shattering. I thought fucking Sting was going to show up. <laughs> I mean, look, this movie has the subtlety of professional wrestling. Right? There is no subtlety in this. There is yeah. no subtlety in this Mm-mm. movie at all. But that's why Holland was brought on, right, Meg? That he was brought on to bring this propulsiveness to this movie. But The Exorcist isn't made to be a propulsive movie, is it? 
No, but I think I think the problem is it's Harlan is just being too withheld. I think he should have just gone full pulp. Full on out, uh, huh? Yeah, and just indulged all of his crazier instincts. Uh, I think I think that's the problem here. It's not that they brought Harlan in to make something that was less austere than Schrader. I think the problem is they brought Harlan in, but didn't really let him go berserk. Outside of one thing, I don't think there's anything that's particularly shocking or inventive that nobody else could not have done as equally well. I, I did read that Harlan did break his leg on this set. And he did a lot of the directing of this movie on crutches. And I feel like this is a movie on crutches at times. I just think it's just kind of struggling along. I feel like every 10 minutes, someone is kicking out the crutch from underneath the Yeah. (laughs) Francis notices all weapons are pointing downward, as is a statue that shows a desecration of Christ. Marin is then told that the lead archaeologist, Bessian, cannot be talked to because he has gone mad. Marin heads to Bessian's tent and finds an abundance of photographs as Marin cuts his hand on a lantern. We see Sarah dealing tarot cards as Marin shows up and asks for a drink. He asks her if she treated Bessian, and she says that there was nothing she could do for him because there was nothing theologically wrong with him, as it was all mental. But that oh, doesn't boy. make any sense. No. <laughs> Theology can also imply physical harm. If you read either of the Testaments, you know, boils on the skin or things like effects of the physical effects of the plague that shit in religion doesn't just happen to your psyche yeah no it's this is where i started just rolling my eyes at this movie because of course the person who got there first has gone insane of course they have and you just know that he's going to visit him in the asylum and he'll do something scary you know (laughs) it's it's really really just obvious yeah this movie is so like telegraphed Except there's there's one thing that that's so dumb. I almost threw up my hands and said, "All right, movie, you win." Marin asks if it was maybe evil spirits that got to him, and of course, this time used to dress his wounds is used as a flirtation device. Sarah then tells Marin about Father Gianetti as he runs the asylum. We then cut to an upside down cross spotted in Francis's room. Marin spots drawings of Pazuzu, and we're even seeing dastardly deeds of the Nazis and what they did to Sarah's family. So, I thought we already reviewed Hannibal Rising. <laughs> and, and that's, that's the laziest thing this movie does, and believe me, there's a lot. There's so much laziness in this movie that they might as well open up a furniture store and sell mattresses for you to sleep on. Is that, okay, what do we, what do we need to use as a storytelling device for Marin to become disinterested with believing in humanity? All right, Nazis, the easiest one to go to. Yep. Indiana Jones did it three goddamn times, and this is basically an Indiana Jones ripoff to a certain extent. So we're going to use Nazis, too. And, of course, we have Harlan putting in a Ridley Scott-style shot of an overhead ceiling fan, because that's what Harlan does. The grandfather clock stops. We then cut to the little boy from earlier as he's being teased, and all of a sudden, some hyenas show up and surround them and attack. And, yes. my God, bad CGI here. Oh, oh, yeah. These look like the dogs from the first Resident Evil movie which was right around this time, where it almost looks like they didn't even use real animals for reference. They're, they're entirely yes. digital creation. Yeah, I thought of the dogs from Hulk. <laughs> it's just bad. Yeah, no, it's, a, um, it's at this point on the DVD commentary that Harlan starts acknowledging that some of the CGI didn't work. <laughs> oh, at this point. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, because before that he's all been like, yes, this was a digital match shot. But then he gets to this bit, he's like, yeah, we discovered you can't train actual hyenas. 
it's true, you can't train hyenas, they're not a trainable animal that you can get to do things, so they've no choice but to go the VFX route for this, but, oh gosh. It's early 2000s, and Pixar had just figured out how to do fur, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Monsters, Inc., but that knowledge hadn't filtered down to the rest of the VFX industry. So, yeah, it's these hyenas, the fur doesn't look right, and, and there isn't enough motion blur when they move. You know, they've got this very sort of staccato, strobe-like yeah. motion to them, which, which again, reminds us that they're animated. It's, yeah, it's a horrible sequence, but not in the way I intended. At the right. very least, use lions. At least those are trainable. Oh, God, yeah. You don't have to rely on something that looks just so fake. Or, or you know, have an animal that doesn't normally savage people. That would be scary. I mean, not if it was squirrels, that would be dumb, but, you know, there's birds <laughs> all over the place. Go yeah. Hitchcock. Yeah. No squirrels in the desert. Yeah. No squirrels in the desert. But, you know, it's just funny because I, I just go back to it because it's part of the franchise. Freakin was able to make all this work. You know, that whole opening scene in that movie, in, in that first movie, we didn't need to see much to be scared by it. We, we heard the noises. And they just cannot do that. And this is why I just think going back to this well, going back to The Exorcist, trying to make money off this property, it's a, it's a losing battle. Because everything that worked in that first film isn't going to work again because it's not done by a master. Marin fights these animals off by shooting them, and then Joseph faints. Yeah, because Marin knows he's the protagonist of reality. Yeah. Marin grabbing the gun is such an absurd... I mean, again, if this was a pulpy, silly... Yes, mm-hmm. if this was the sort of hypothetical, you know, Lancaster, Marin, and the, you know, the Tomb of Satan or whatever, yeah, I'd be like, yeah, our pulpy hero's done the stupid pulpy thing, but given that it's sort of supposed to be, oh, an exorcist prequel, it feels odd. It feels very odd. We're hearing that Joseph wasn't even looked at by the hyenas. Marin shows up to Bessie and Cell, and he's just let in. Marin is asking him questions as the cell door closes, and he's cutting himself in the neck, saying that he's free. (sighs) (laughs) It's just, it's just, you know, it's... You know what? I want one of these movies for the uh, main character to visit the asylum where the person who's trolled that path before him has ended up, and for the person to be fine. Or or at least (laughs) not doing the thing... At least not doing the thing that's happening here, because it's like, oh, he's going to be cutting himself, won't he? It'll be... Why would they let him have a knife? This is a very poorly run institution. It's it's just such a cliche, and it, it hasn't been enlivened or subverted in any way. It's just... It's a cliche. Also, when you get possessed by any sort of demonic entity, they take away your arteries, and it's impossible for you to bleed out. Father Gianetti shows up and says that Bessian was touched, not possessed by the devil. He says that four priests were dispatched to the site of 34 nuns who were also possessed, and the same evil that plagued them is what took Father Bessian. So this priest knows it all. It's another one of these characters who knows everything. Yes. Um, again, here's the thing. It's uh, Gianetti's played by uh, the great English actor David Bradley, who I, I understand he's in one of the, in the Harry Potter films or something, but I don't care yeah, about that. He's, uh, uh, the caretaker at the school. Right. But um, he's one of these actors who's you know, a terrific you know, British character actor, not a star, but a, a fantastic character actor who's very well respected and is exactly the kind of person you'd get in your late 90s, early 2000s, full motion video point and click game. You know, he's and his dialogue's exactly like that. The only thing yeah. I liked about this scene is the fact that you can see their breath. And I thought that was a callback, the original film, and Reagan's bedroom, and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, everyone's breath fogging. But, um, no, it's just because they shot it really early in the morning, and it was kind of winter time. It's not intentional. It's it's purely accidental that this happened. Not intentional. And I, kind of, and I was kind of giving the movie the benefit of the doubt, and I thought, oh, that, that's a nice, you know, nice little callback, subtle. 
Marin once again says that he's not a priest, so he can't perform the exorcism. We cut back to Sarah, who's doing her scientific research as hyenas move about all around her. She grabs a scalpel and investigates as she spots Joseph petting something on the ground, which turns out to be his brother's head. But this turns out to be a nightmare. So Harlan's going back to his Nightmare on Elm Street roots here, isn't he, Matt? Yeah, and I I hate these dream hallucination fake-outs, which were incredibly common around this period. Mm -hmm. Everybody thought they knew how to do psychological horror, but the psychology was done by people who were lobotomized. Yeah, no, it's a, again, it's another sort of full-on horror trope we've seen too many times. Jeffries tells Sarah that she threw it away as Joseph walks in and says that he's coming for you. He then tells Sarah that he's had a bad dream. Marin sees Joseph, who obviously has some legions on his chest, and Sarah says all she can do is sit and wait. She asks him to sit with her, and he tells her that Bessian is dead due to some accident, and she says it seems that she cannot help anyone anymore. This Sarah character was added for this movie. And if you can't see where this character is going, then you have never seen a movie in your life. This is a real terrible bait and switch they're trying to do with this character. It is a prototypical Harlan damsel in distress here. These females that get caught up in these things that they cannot explain. Oh yeah, because in a movie called The Exorcist, she's the only woman in the movie, you do the math. So she's not in the Paul Schrader one at all? No. Oh, so it must have an entirely different third act then. Everything's different, yeah. Yeah, and I know her from GoldenEye. That's the only other thing I know her. Yeah, I had to think about it. I, I saw her, I'm like, I know I recognize her, I know I recognize her, and I looked up her IMDb, yep, that's where I saw her too, was GoldenEye. Mick, you saw this, you thought this was obvious, right? Um, yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm not buying any of this is the problem. It's that they haven't gone stupid enough to turn off my brain, but they're not intelligent enough to make me feel like I'm not being insulted. It's just, it's, it's, again, it's from falling between two extremes. And if it is just committed to one over the other, I, I might have been happy. But, you know. Uh, uh. This, of course, prompts a kiss from Pimp Marin as blood pumps in Joseph's IV. They go yeah, to him and he... This is also a trope where we're going to have the hot woman to potentially seduce the priest. Yep. They go to Joseph and he starts shaking the bed. Not like we haven't seen this before. Marin goes back under the church as crows continue to fly and he sees one has indeed been sacrificed. He sees the upside-down cross, and then he starts opening the casket. A birth of a demonic baby is taking place as Marin digs deeper down and finds a bigger statue of Pazuzu, and we get the return of the locusts! They're back! Because <laughs> we need a locust back in this series. I will give this movie credit. Unlike a lot of modern prequels and sequels, it doesn't outright ignore one nope. of the other movies. I at least have to give it points for even acknowledging the second movie. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph's dad shows up as she gives him another blood test. Jeffries is then attacked by something we don't see as Harlan puts a shower scene here for no freaking reason. <laughs> well, again, it's another troop we've seen a million times before. This is, yeah. this is a sleazy studio note. No, I feel like this is Harlan's sensibility here. I think this is him. Sarah hears a noise, so she investigates in a towel as Joseph's whole room turns on its power. Yeah, she sees- again... This, this whole scene, woman, vulnerable, having a shower, gets out, scantily clad to investigate. You know, this is a thing that's mocked by the opening of Jason Goes to Hell. You know, and your Exorcist prequel isn't as smart as Jason Goes to Hell. <laughs> oh, that's I'll, give, great. I'll give Jason Goes to Hell this. It's far more interesting. Yeah. Sarah sees that she's bleeding, and she tells Marin that the place is cursed with something evil. Marin says that he found that they were doing human sacrifices under the church. 
We get more flashbacks as Marin wakes up and Francis takes him to where Jeffries was and they find the medallion. Marin is now wondering who buried those who died from the plague. Francis calls the military and they of course are blaming the Turkana and Marin questions that they are not at fault here. Marin is then told that the plague was not to blame for all the deaths. It was the evil from their church which is happening again. Marin isn't getting any answers so he heads to the graveyard to uncover whatever's in it. In the meantime, there is an exorcism being performed on Joseph. Marin is surrounded by hyenas as a knife is raised and Joseph fights them off. So all this cutting around, is there symbolism that Harlan's going for here? Or is it just a shock of exercising this particular child? Or is he just going for slickness? I think he just wants to get everything shot in time and deliver the film on schedule. Because <laughs> yeah. like you said, he has six weeks, right? It's six weeks. And again, here's the thing. Once you've got a ginormous flaw, you want to prove to people that you're bankable and reliable. You know, and I, I think I think a lot of this is Harlan knowing he's under the gun and getting the film in on schedule. I don't think he's making any kind of statement, but I do find it mildly gross that this movie seems to kind of relish in the torment of children, which is is in the first movie. I mean, look, that's the entire, certainly the, the crux of, of, of a huge majority of it. But I never felt like it was doing it for outright shock value, which I can accuse this of doing. Marin continues digging as we once again cut to a full flashback of Marin choosing Sarah's family to be killed one by one. All right, the dumbest fucking thing. <laughs> This is how you open the movie. This should not have been a reveal. Because yeah, if I agree you explain with that. why he abandons his faith, it makes his actual struggle something you can follow throughout the entire movie. Well, it's kind of weird, um, because my mind was wondering when I watched this. Yeah, uh, I was rather a lot, yeah. <laughs> but it, uh, um, because, you know, I'm from Northern Ireland, and I grew up during the Troubles, and, you know, my, my background is Catholic, mm-hmm. and I went to a Catholic boys' school, and, uh, yeah... I sort of ended up meeting a couple of people, a couple of priests, who were there on the ground when several very, very awful things had happened. Like, I was okay. Googling one of them after this, and suddenly realized, like, oh, yeah, he's he's actually properly famous because he was there when this terrible thing happened. And I was thinking about those guys, you know, and how they were and how they carried themselves, and how, certainly with one of them, I think a lot of the way he was treated by, you know, students... And other teachers were all sort of very, you know, we were very mindful of the fact that, oh, well, he has done this sort of work and nobody gave him any trouble, you know. And thinking about that, you know, got people I knew when I was, you know, in my teens who just seemed straight up haunted and how it doesn't even need to be something terribly complicated or something absolutely horrific, like the sort of ridiculous Sufi's Choice situation that this film presents. And this is what I think it seems overcooked. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm fine with it being the Nazis, but I think it should be maybe it should have been something subtler. And I, I don't have a problem with the Nazis being portrayed as you know cartoonish avatars of absolute evil because they were, though that's not unique to Nazis. But no, I think the thing is just it's yeah, it's it's just done with new subtlety. So Marin opens the casket only to see that they're empty and full of crosses. He interrogates Francis, who tells him of a massacre 1,500 years ago by an army being led by two priests who were there to search for the origin of an evil which consumed them, and only a single priest survived. When he got back, they ordered a church to be built to hide the evil and for all mentions to be stricken. Again, Francis knows everything. Then in 1893, a single priest found an ancient letter in the archives. Four priests came to investigate, and they all disappeared. No one knows where they went, and the grave was built with stories of the plague to keep people away. 
He was sent there to see if the legend of Lucifer falling here was true. From here on out, the movie's a chocolate Easter bunny. It's fucking hollow as shit. Yeah, no, it's, this movie doesn't really have anything deeper going on. Yeah. And, and it's frustrating because a better version of this movie could either have been the, the, the pulpy guilty pleasure I want, or could have said serious things. You know, I mean, this film has, you know, we've got Merrin remembering the Nazis, but as the narrative's unfolding, we have the British in Kenya, and this, this film's timeline is, I don't know if you're familiar with sort of the history of Kenya, but yeah. this film's timeline is just a few years before the Mama Rebellion. So as, as bad as things are there right now, in the timeline of the film, they're about to get much worse, and, uh, yeah, the British are gonna be committing atrocities, which, um, I mean, they already have, but, you know, uh, a few years down the line, we're gonna be committing atrocities which, uh, are unspeakable. I quite like that that's kind of in the text, but it's not dealt with intelligently. You know, the idea that colonialism is itself this other evil that humans do, and I'd, I'd like to have seen a, a better version of this film which engaged with that. There's definitely a better version of this film out there, for sure. Oh, yeah. Between the, 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 the timeline and the fetch quest nature of this movie with the landmarks and the archaeological discoveries, I'm convinced Marnie Harlan failed both geography and history in school. Francis tells Marin that he has to believe, to which Marin responds, I believe in nothing. They go back to the church to find that Jeffries has been strung up and mangled. The Major heads out and a little war breaks out. Marin leaves as the Major plucks a butterfly, which turns out to be a crow under, I'm guessing, the influence of Pazuzu. This is very bizarre. Did, did I, I put in the heretic? Yeah, like, I get that Harlan's trying to, you know, he, he's doing something a little different here. But this is just, I know you're trying to show that Pazuzu is around, but this is not a good way of doing it by showing possessed butterflies. The, the butterfly case, the, all the butterflies flapping their wings. Yeah. Again, it's, you know, this movie lifting things from better text. And, you know, it's something that's from uh, Dan O'Bannon's Return of the Living Dead. A series I hope to cover one day. Yeah, you know, it's a direct lift from that. Interesting. All the butterflies are flapping their wings, as Mick said. There's a gun to the head. Butterfly emerges from his mouth before he shoots himself. A sandstorm approaches, not letting them leave, and Marin says that he has to find Sarah. He then gives Francis a Bible and tells him to go. We see a Turkana ritual as the storm hits and Francis is seen carrying Joseph. He tries casting the spell out as Marin goes to Sarah's and sees that Pazuzu has been there too, complete with locusts. He sees that Sarah was married to Bession, meaning that she went into the church with him. So instead of Joseph being the one possessed, we find out it's Sarah. Dun dun dun. We're still cutting to Joseph being exercised as Sarah approaches and then kills Francis. The war rages on as a Pazuzu statue is shown in the dust. Some crazy deaths are happening here in this war. I mean, Harlan is kind of flexing his muscles here. I mean, he's able to do some of this stuff with the devil, and we have some action scenes here too, right, Matt? Yeah, but th this is one of those things where it's like I picture some executive at a table going, wait, they have a movie called The Exorcist, and there's no exorcism. you got to put an exorcism in this movie. This shit is so hokey. It's basic. It feels like the skit that Kian Peel did making fun of The Exorcist. Repossessed would look at this and be like, even we have a semblance of seriousness, sir. Yeah, yeah. It's like, just, like it's there's done. a fucking holy headbutt. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Marin makes it into the church and he pleads with the Lord to forgive his disbelief as to not abandon him now. So this is his arc. So now he's back to believing for the sake of winning this war, I guess. Well, you know, again, this film is so tropey. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. 
Marin not believing, it's exactly the same as, oh, do you know the Bruce Lee film? Uh, I think it's, is it Fist of Fury? Uh, it's or, either Fist of Fury or Game of Death, one of those two. Right, but you know Fist of Fury, I think it is where he's, there's the bad guys who absolutely need their asses whooped, but Bruce Lee has promised his mother he won't fight, and that he doesn't do that. You know, it does that whole putting off the Bruce Lee kicking their asses bit as long as possible. It's that, it's that action movie trope. You know, it's like, no, no, I've changed. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's William Hitch money in, um, Unforgiven. Unforgiven, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, drinking the whiskey, and we know he's going to be back to his old self. It, it's that, it, it's, but, you know, without any of the subtlety. He then sees Joseph perched up as Sarah is now fully possessed. He tells her to leave him alone and take him, the fallen priest. Harlan even adds the fog here, so we're getting all of it. <laughs> uh, like, you know, we've had Austin, we've had Sting, we had a Dynamite Kid headbutt, now freaking Undertaker's going to come out of nowhere. I was waiting for the Undertaker to show up. Sarah tempts him with an open top as she taunts him that he believes in nothing. Joseph is then taken further into the catacombs. Marin goes in as more images such as fallen blood and the little girl from earlier fills the screen. He finds Francis and heads to find Joseph and he finds Sarah instead and she pulls a Freddy type trick of cutting her tongue and letting it flutter. Yeah, like this is the one moment of like genuine camp that I feel inching its way into the movie, but it, it's not—it's nowhere near enough. If the whole movie was this, where it was like Indiana Jones mixed with like the the zany like lunacy of Evil Dead Two, you might have had something. Yeah, I know exactly that. It's—I—I uh, I, I want more um, demented campiness. Marin hits her with his sash as she crawls on the wall and then grabs Joseph. He tells God to spare the child as he commands the devil to part. And we even get a power of Christ compels you as Pazuzu disappears and Sarah reappears. Or so he thinks as she gets back into demonic form and hits him down. He warns Joseph to not listen to the demon lies and goes over the final exorcism sermon with him before they embark on releasing the demon. We see Sarah make a beeline toward them as Marin yells for the spirit to leave her. And he casts her out right in time. We knew Marin wasn't going to die, but with the boy, that was my question. You know, I mean, that, that's the, again, we talk about this with prequels all the time, Matt. We'll probably talk about it with Star Wars when we get to that, those prequels. We know certain characters aren't going to die, and that kind of takes away the power of this, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I've, I think I've really only seen one film prequel that absolutely worked, and it surprised me. Um, I don't know if you know the Hong Kong film Infernal Affairs. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, the Departed's a remake of it, yeah. but uh, it has a it's the first sequel to it's actually a prequel, and there's one character in the prequel who's not in the original film, so you know that she's on borrowed time. You know she can't possibly be making it out of this film in one piece. But even with all of that, her death still comes as this complete shock, you know, uh, because you know you can you can create a prequel and even if we knew that certain events are preordained, you can still have surprises or set yeah. things up in a way that confounds our expectations. And this one doesn't really do that. You also have Matt. to find a way to break the the predictability of a prequel because when you think of prequels, the the greatest one. Is also a sequel, and it's The Godfather 2. One of the reasons why that movie works so well is that there's another story you can latch on to. Because honestly, like, I think prequels are, they're already pigeonholed into a difficult situation. And I, and I find it very hard to think of, like, great prequels. Marin reaches for Sarah, and this time the spirit has been fully cast out of her as she grabs his cross and says thank you. We see that she's been cut behind the head, and she bleeds to death in Marin's arms. That escalated quickly. 
Marin says that she's with God now as he digs them out, and we see the result of war. We cut to a cafe as he says that his mission was not successful in finding what Semilar was looking for, but he places the Pazuzu statue on the table, corrects him by saying his name is actually Father Marin as birds fly overhead and credits roll on Exorcist, the beginning. Boys, what do we think of this end? Matt. I was happy it was over, but then I realized, oh, wait, there's another version I have to watch. Yep, another version. Mick? Okay, this is this ending is bonkers to me because, you know, we have... Okay, first of all, they don't trust us to know that Merrin has returned to the priesthood. You know, the visual, you know, with his scarf falling away as he stands up and we can see that he's got the dog collar again. That should be enough to tell us, but he has to tell Somalier, no, it's Father Merrin. You know, he has to have that line, and that, that's horribly on the nose, but... Oh, God. The thing that kills us is that it's, you know, the idea of the film ending with Merrin in his hat and his bag and echoing, you know the shot of Von Saito in the original film, walking towards the house in Prospect Street. That's, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's a bit hacky, but th- that's fine in theory, especially because here the idea is that he's walking towards, you know, the Vatican. You know, we can see uh, the, the dome, right? He's, uh, he's in Rome, except it's all green screen. <laughs> and this movie was shot in Rome. This film was filmed at the Cinecita film studio in Rome, the, the famous film studio, you know, where all the great Italian films were made. And But they, they didn't do location shooting for this shot. And Harlan says on the commentary, it's because, well, you know, it's hard to get that place completely empty of people. You know, you'd have to... And he says, when we shot the background plate for this, we went there at five in the morning when there was no one about. And really, that just begs the question, Rene, why didn't you just bring your actor with you? Yeah. I mean, I'll put put it this way. To to mention another part four, you know that shot in Phantasm 4 where they have Angus Scrim's tall man walking down a a completely deserted, I want to say, Hollywood Boulevard? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, a location that's normally busy and full of tourists, but isn't in that particular shot because, you know, they shot it at four in the morning during the summer. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. Just yeah. drag Skarsgård out of his hotel, <laughs> take him to the place, put the hat and coat on. You know what I mean? <laughs> or you don't even need him. You just need him for, you know, the uh, the start of the shot. You know, the uh, start of that sequence where he's walking towards it. You could just get a stand-in, and it would look better than this horrible green screen mess. It's just appalling. Yeah, I, uh, the whole thing about, like, it being fake and, like, you know, oh, we couldn't get the place empty. I think Danny Boyle heard that and almost had a stroke. Yeah. You heard what he did for 28 days later. Yeah. Yeah, you get, I mean, if you do it for anything, it's like, you know, Night of the Comet? Oh, yeah. You know, a, a, a film that clearly has a tiny budget, but has all of that stuff of a depopulated L.A., and it's like, yeah, you just get up early enough and you drag your actor there. Yeah. All right, boys. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Exorcist the beginning? Mick. Uh, <clears throat> no, I don't think it's as bad as everyone says, right? I mean, I don't think it's great. You know, I've heard a lot of people, uh, you know, um, speak as if it's the most dismal and terrible film ever, and I can understand why it has that reputation, because, you know, it's a prequel to The Exorcist, and, you know, it's certainly not up to code, but I don't think it's the worst horror film I've ever seen, and certainly not the worst horror film of that particular era. And, you know, there are a couple of things in it that I quite like that it at least tried to do. You know, I like the fact that it was sort of trying to engage with colonialism as a theme. And, um, you know, I, I sort of admire some of the efficiency of Harlan's directing. One thing that 
I didn't realize I was watching it again with the commentary. It's all of the exterior stuff that's supposed to be Kenya. He shot it all in the same gravel pit outside Rome that's normally used for like a... Um, that normally turns up in those kind of early 80s Mad Max ripoffs. Like Megaforce? Uh, no, because Megaforce is American. I think I think like a... Oh, God. Any of those uh, Enzo Castorelli sort of a, um, films. Not Bronx Warriors, but like uh, films of that ilk. You know, uh, like the New Barbarians, where they would just like, we're not even going to go to the desert. We're going to go to this gravel pit that's just outside Rome. And, you know, it always looks like it. And I didn't get that vibe here. I kind of thought, well, this is Harlan doing his best with his schedule and this this impossible task. And a thing that we haven't mentioned, but I will mention it just right now, the film actually looks really nice. It's shot by Vittorio Storora, the um, great Italian cinematographer who shot, like, Bertolucci's films. You know, it, it, it looks nice, except when it's a horrible CGI mess. So, you know... I'm, I'm just being kind, and I'm going to six. Wow, I thought you were going to zig, and you zagged. You have been down on this movie the entire time, and you're going with a six? Yeah, I mean, wow. that's still not good. All right. You know. Rennie will be happy to hear that. Matt, I have a feeling you're not going to go as high. No. I mean, this movie is one of my favorite reviews I've ever read for this movie is Ian Nathan from Empire Magazine said, It isn't quite hell, but clamoring to the end of this dusty remnant is certainly purgatory. Uh, this is not the depths of the heretic, because very few things I've ever seen in my life actually are. But in the vein of shitty prequels that don't need to exist, this can be thrown into the pit along with, like, a hundred other movies I've seen. It's 90 minutes of dull plotting that is kind of salvaged by 20 minutes of just borderline absurdity that does not fit with what has preceded it, but at least woke me up from my slumber. I mean, this this movie was so dull at points, I thought Paul Schrader actually directed it, because some of his movies are really painful to watch if you're not into them. And I don't mean that in the best of ways. So yeah, you're following up one of the most well-known movies of all time. It's a good thing The Heretic doesn't exist, which I think is why this movie... To mixed point is not the worst thing ever made because it kind of already was with the heretic, at least for this franchise. Anything that you want that you could praise the original for is not here. Does exposition horribly? Like I said, there's too many things that were just mainstays tropes of the genre around this time. But I at least didn't feel like it was painful to watch. I have seen on this show alone, I have seen fucking horrors. This is not on that level, but I, I can't endorse it. It's the uh, it's the classic. It's a four on ten. Four from Matt. I thought you were going to go the Winston route and say, I have seen shit that'll turn you white. Yeah, I'm a little more on the long lines of Mick here. I, I, I feel like he Rennie Harlan was giving the impossible task of taking something that was already made, take its main star, and recast the entire thing and do something different. Go, go, go. Do it, do it, do it. Oh, by the way... It's a prequel to one of the most popular horror films of all time. That's an impossible task. And I don't know if the six-week window really hampered Harlan to the point where he just kind of did what he did just to get it done and get it done on time, as Matt said earlier in the podcast, or if he was trying to make something genuine here. I have a feeling it was the former. I think he was just trying to get this done on time. Now, let's say he was given a normal 
you know, three, four month window to do what he wanted to do with this. How do you think he would have handled it? Would it have been better? Would it have been worse? I pondered that before coming up with my final score because, again, this is an impossible task. That being said, the CGI effects here are really bad. I think a lot of the cuts, a lot of the way certain things are revealed in this movie, it's just bad. And it fits in with a lot of those, Matt said this earlier, but a lot of those early to mid-2000s horror films that just aren't good. And um, that really hampers this. You know, if we're if I'm talking about good exorcist moments, I'm not talking about crows and butterflies being turned into crows. And I mean, there's just a lot of weird hallucinogenic shit in this that just doesn't make any sense. And again, the reveal of Sarah as being the one who's possessed is it's just pretty bad when we've been told this entire time that Father Marin actually exercised a boy. That was his first one. But no, Harlan throws the curveball and says, no, it was this beautiful woman that has he has been paying attention to this entire film. And that's just a myriad of problems. You know, I, I think this movie, it suffers from a lack of good pacing. It suffers from bad transitions. And even Skarsgård is just, he didn't really show up to play here. He's just kind of getting through it because this is the second time he's played this character in a span of a couple months. He's, he's trying to move on to the next thing. It's not a good movie, but I'm with Mick in that I don't think it's necessarily a bad movie. I think it's fairly watchable. I think there are moments, especially in that finale. Yeah, you'll laugh at a few of them, but there's there's a couple genuine moments here. Anytime he, one of these characters is possessed and we're seeing we're hearing that voice come out of him, it kind of unnerves me. Still, the ending of this is kind of a mess. Uh, the movie is a little bit of a mess, but it's a watchable mess. It's a 5 out of 10 for me for Exorcist, the beginning. All right, boys, we are four down. We have two left. Although we're kind of reviewing this exact movie, except it's different. Schrader was able to finally get this released the year after his version of it. It was released to video. We are covering it. Matt, what are you expecting when we get to Schrader's version of this story? No clue. I'm walking into this as blind as I possibly can. All right. What about you, Mick? What are you expecting? Uh, Strader, the writer of Taxi Driver, the writer of The Last Temptation of Christ, a writer who has definitely had good moments. He's had great moments and he's had some down moments. Uh, what are you expecting next week out of those moments? Okay. What I'm expecting is for Schrader to have made a film that deals more with his concerns and his particular preoccupations rather than a film that delivers what an audience might expect from something with the word exorcist in its title. You know, I expect it will be a Schrader film. Maybe not one of the great ones, but it will be it will be the thing the studio shouldn't have ordered. Yeah, I'm with the, exactly with you guys. I literally have no idea what to expect other than Schrader is going to do what Schrader does, which is a Schrader piece of work. He's not going to do something that's part of a franchise. We'll get into discussions of why he chose the project, why he thought he could do something with it. But yeah, I I have not watched it yet as we record this. I didn't even watch it when it was released. I was just like, you know what? I'm exorcist out. Um, I don't need to see it. Now I do need to see it. And we have two more weeks of this, boys. We have this, and then we have the David Gordon Green movie that we are going to review and then we are done with the exorcist but boys thank you very much for going with me on this journey i kind of feel like sometimes that (laughs) this particular series is cursed in itself we've had a couple stumbling blocks but we are moving forward and until next week when we do dominion the prequel to the exorcist this podcast it's cursed thank you gentlemen
harm could there be in his being baptized? A great deal. Those people hate and fear Chechia. Do you want to expose him to further danger by having him join a religion they equate with evil? Oh, say it. Say it, Mariner, can't you? The work of Satan. It's the work of man! Why can't you accept that? Because my only concern is the eternal soul of that young man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Join us next week for an entirely new review. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. The sour is mine! It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. I like plays. The good ones, Shakespeare. I like Titus Andronicus the best. It's sweet. And if you like this review, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast streamer of choice, where we have individual reviews such as Knock at the Cabin, The Black Phone, Megan, as well as additional blockbuster franchises like Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean series, Stephen King's ongoing collection, and many more. He has work to do much more. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Did you know that you are talking to an artist? Edited by Garrett. Once the wings have brushed you, you're mine forever. Voiceovers by Adam. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Well, bye. Extra Cyst, the beginning.
Released August twentieth, twenty two. Released August twentieth, two thousand four. Berman, the same though. Obviously, his film is terrible. There aren't a lot of people going to bat for um, Exorcist to Electric Pazuzu, as I started calling it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I googled that joke, and seemingly no one else has made it. So you know. So we we claim it now. Yeah, we claim it, it now. But yeah. Um, and that's why, I mean, before Schrader, they were looking to get John Frankenheimer to direct. John Frankenheimer was on with Liam Neeson in the lead. With Liam, yeah, yeah. Um, and before that, they had another gentleman we've talked about, Tom McLaughlin. He was attached to it, and then he departed. Wasn't Frankenheimer going to do it at one point? We just mentioned that, yeah. Frankenheimer that's was right, on. yeah. Marin is then told that the lead archaeologist, Bession, Bession, Bession cannot be talked he asked her if she treated Bessian, and she says that there was nothing she could do for him because there was nothing philologic phil, phil, theologically. <sighs> Thank you, theologically wrong with him. It makes his actual struggle something you can follow throughout the entire movie. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Mick, you agree with that? Is Mick here? I think his computer did an exorcism. <laughs> Let's see here. Uh, he did he leave the mic? No, he's on. He's on. Yeah, I see. I see him. Maybe he yeah. unplugged his mic. I don't know. He's not responding. This series it seems to be cursed. Well, maybe the power of Christ will compel him to plug <laughs> his mic again. <laughs> you also have Matt. to find a way to break the the predictability of a prequel because when you think of prequels the, the greatest one is also a sequel and it's the Godfather that really works so well is that there's another story you can latch on to because honestly like I think prequels are they're already pigeonholed into a difficult situation and I, and I find it very hard to think of like great prequels yeah, I would fight you on Godfather 2, though, and we, I probably will when we get to that series. You know, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is technically, like, the best prequel. Oh, yeah. Casino Royale, if you count that as a prequel, but it's also a reboot. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, strictly a prequel to an established, well-established continuity, like, even if it's just a singular movie. No, I think in, in literature, there's one great prequel. You know, the uh, Wide Sargasso Sea, you know, yeah. being a much after, much, like, century or so more than a century or so later, sort of sequel to um, Jane Eyre, well, prequel to Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. unpicking its backstory, and it's, you know, I think that's literally the only time someone's done this and things been as acclaimed as, you know, the uh, source material. Because, mm-hmm. like, the, the big exception, you know, I, I don't really count this one because it's a, it's a prequel to television, the Twin Peaks movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I almost don't want to count that because it's... yeah. Uh, I mean, if you twist my arm, it's recency bias, but Pearl? Oh, God. Actually, you know what? Yeah, no, forget it. Recency bias doesn't come into it. Pearl is magnificent. <laughs>